Before we get started, I have an important message. If you're on Medicare or about to be, you don't want to go it alone. And you don't want to just call the first guy who sends you a postcard. My husband did that, and he wound up with some bad advice that costs us a penalty each month that will never go away. So what can you do? Contact one of our member experts by going to certifiedmedicareagents.com and searching your state for an agent. You'll be able to look through our member agents and read about them. Then you can reach out to the agent or broker you select directly through the site. Now, one thing you should know is other sites who do this sell your information to 15 or more agents so you can get hundreds of unwanted phone calls. Not so with CertifiedMedicareAgents.com. You'll only be contacted by one agent, and if there is a problem, I may personally reach out to you, but generally you will only hear from the one agent you select. So head on over there right now before you forget and find a qualified and certified agent that can help you today. Now, let's start our program. Welcome back to the Rocky Retirement Show. I'm your host, Kathy Klein, and today's guest host is an expert on pain. We had so many email responses to our four-part series on pain that I thought it would be great to bring on an actual expert. Les and I discussed pain in episodes 180 through 183, but as you know, we're not experts. We discussed the June 2019 article on pain. And since our discussion, I had something happen to me that you probably aren't aware of unless you're a member of the Facebook group. I was taken to the emergency room by ambulance because I could not get out of bed due to pain. So our guest today couldn't have come at a better time. But he actually doesn't know what happened to me as we had this podcast episode scheduled way in advance. So let me tell you a little bit about my guest host. He is a fellowship trained specialist and an expert on the science of pain, actually trained in anesthesiology at the University of Chicago. After that, he completed his fellowship in pain medicine at the University of Michigan, and then later served as an associate program director of the Naval Medical Center's San Diego's Pain Medicine Fellowship Program, right around my old neck of the woods in San Diego. Dr. Kukaro focuses on creating solutions for pain and pain-related topics important to healthcare systems, clinicians, and the public. Perfect timing, wouldn't you say? You can also go to straightshothealth.com to learn more about him and his practice. During this four-part series, we'll be discussing the podcast episodes that Les and I created and what we left out. In this first of four, we'll be discussing what happened to me and how I might have been able to prevent it. Then, in the second episode, we'll talk about how well do we, in other words, the healthcare system, treat pain. 
The third episode in the series will discuss pain myths and misconceptions. And finally, in the fourth and last part of the series, we'll talk about why firefighters are better pain specialists than actual pain specialists. I can't wait to get that in. So if you have pain or know someone who does, then you're going to want to stick around for all four parts in this series. But before we start, I wanted to tell you that this episode is brought to you by the Medicare Quick Step-by-Step -Step Guide for Signing Up for Medicare. Head on over to medicarequick.com slash checklist and get your guide. Dr. Kevin Kukaro, thank you so much for co-hosting. I'm thankful to have an experienced and educated pain expert such as yourself to help me and my audience with our pain. Thanks again for coming. Well, thank you, Kathy, for having me on the show. Well, you know, my audience doesn't really know this, but we actually had another day scheduled and I was having technical difficulties. So I thank you even more so that you graciously came back. Well, we all have technical problems every once in a while, right? And so it makes more <laughs> sense to reschedule and get it all worked out. You know, technology is supposed to make our lives so much easier. And it does in a lot of ways, but it also tends to introduce some complexities and problems that we have to solve in the moment. So that's right. And today I'm actually testing a new platform. So thanks for helping me with this test as well. I appreciate it. Yeah. So I told you a little bit about my situation. I'll, I'll just, and I know, oh, and before we start, I wanted to let the listeners know in no way is this medical, financial, legal advice. This is for entertainment purposes only. Isn't that right, doctor? That is, is um, it's informational and educational, I think would be the key things that would be inappropriate to provide medical advice like this uh, to, in the, to a general audience. And or so, over the podcast. Or over the podcast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, people obviously are not giving you direct medical advice in any way, shape or form, but we're, we'll be talking about pain. We'll be talking about situations. And so uh, just use your common sense on this. That's right, because the doctor is a doctor, but he's not your doctor. So please, if you have any questions, see your own medical professional. So that being said, a little while ago, I was having pain in my neck. This had gone on for a couple of days, and I, I'm not, you know, I'm no stranger to having pain in my neck. But this had gone on for a couple of days, so I thought I would do some traction. And traction is something that I've done in the past. I have a, a three pound weight that goes on a strap that goes around your head. And then you, you have a small roll pillow and you lay on the pillow with your head hanging over the side of the bed. So my gut told me not to do it. I did it anyway. Instead of doing it for two minutes, I did it for three minutes. And then when I was finished, I could not get out of bed. <laughs> <laughs> I called my husband over and, and he tried, tried his best, gave me a leave. So, so I took it a leave and then an hour later still couldn't get out of bed. So I have a doctor. I don't know if my listeners have access to a direct primary care doctor, but that's the type of doctor that I have, which means she's not a concierge doctor. She doesn't accept insurance but she charges me $50 a month and I get access to her home phone number. And she in turn doesn't have to deal with insurance 
I would love it. You know, it's kind of like medicine in the 1800s where, you know, you called the doctor at home and the doctor came over. She, she doesn't come to my house, but, but I have direct access to her. So I called her up. It was 11 o'clock at night, said, you know, it's been an hour. I'm starting to go into shock. What do I do? And what do you think she told me to do? Go to the emergency room. <laughs> she said, call an ambulance. That's what we did. We called an ambulance. It's a little embarrassing because not only did an ambulance come, but a fire truck came. And so every neighbor, even though the sirens weren't on, you know, the lights wake people up. Every neighbor was watching this. And because there's a 20 year age difference between my husband and myself, who do you think they were there to pick up? Your husband. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it was me. So that's my little story on pain. I'm fine now. I uh, took what they told me to take and I took it easy for a little while. And now I'm back about 95%, I would say. But what do you think I did wrong? Just hearing that little bit of a story. Well, this there's more to this story probably than what you're saying so far, because we don't know exactly what they did in the emergency room and okay. we don't know what the outcomes were there. But I'll, I'll tell you the, the key thing I cued into just when you started talking was you were using a traction device. And while you have used that previously, for whatever reason on this day, something was telling you not to do it. Right. And then the second part about that that I found interesting is you said not only was something inside you telling you not to do it, but instead of your normal, which you are used to time of using this traction device for two minutes, you went for three minutes instead. Well, the normal time is three minutes, but you usually work your way up to it. And it had been maybe eight years since I'd used it. Okay. So instead of starting with two minutes, which is probably, or even one minute, uh, you know, I thought, well, I've done it a million times. I've had this device for, you know, 15, 20 years. I know what I'm doing. And so I just said to heck with it. I'm going to do it for three minutes. So yeah, I wasn't listening to my, my common sense to say something like that uh, needs to be built up. My understanding in the past is that you don't just throw yourself into traction, that you work your way up to it. But, but I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I, I, I want to get to the, to the rest of the story here, but I, I think it's, there's a couple things here that I'm going to try to circle back if I can remember to do this. Sometimes when I start getting talking and as we start getting talking, I may, may miss some of this, but the, the key things here for me, and again, hopefully this makes more sense as we start talking about pain, is the fact that there was something inside of you. So your brain in some way, shape or form was saying, you should not be doing this. We can call that a threat. And the second part was how you mentioned is that you would generally would build up to traction. So there again is something where your brain would be saying we should be building up to this but <laughs> into it. Uh, and so there's another threat there. So, um, but I think there's more to the story. So what happened next? Well, what happened next was the ambulance came. They used like a sheet to lift me up out of the bed. Surprisingly, they didn't put a neck brace on me. They just from the sheet, put me on whatever their version of a gurney is and got me into the ambulance. And I must say that it was painful driving to the to the ER, although it's very close to my house. It's basically right outside the gate. Thank goodness. And it was a brand new emergency room. So that part was was a blessing. 
they, I probably would have been a lot more comfortable had they put a neck brace on me. Although I don't know how they would have, because it was very difficult. I, I don't even know how they got me out of that bed, to be honest. <laughs> you know, the sheet. I, I don't know. They got me into the ambulance, took me to the ER. And then once I was in the ER, they checked me out. You know, they squeeze my hand, move your toes, wiggle this, do that. And once they saw that I could wiggle everything, they gave me a Percocet and a shot of a muscle relaxant. So that's basically what happened in the ER. And then after, after a little while, they went and did x-rays. So what did they say while they were doing that examination? You said they were having you push, you know, squeeze their hands. And my suspicion is they probably had you push down with your feet and toes and move your legs as well. What were they, what did they say after that? Well, let's see here. I, I know you and I talked about this right before the show, but I, I'm sorry, I'm not remembering. Remind me what I said, please. <laughs> well, I think they, I think what they did is they reassured you. Oh, yes, yes. And, and they were wonderful, by the way. Had I had them at my house, I probably wouldn't have called for an ambulance, you know? And yeah. And, and that was, that was one of the key things is, is because if, if I'm again, remembering, we had a little brief discussion before we got on. And you started feeling better once they started to reassure you. Yes, because and I was afraid that I was that I had done something dramatically wrong and that I was going to wind up paralyzed. That kept going through my head. And that's why I went into shock, because I kept working. I worked myself up into a frenzy, basically. And then the second part about this is so it, again is uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. So they reassured you after the exam, and that's the first thing is the fears go down. Um, then they did give you some medications, two different types, but then they took you to the X-ray. And what did they say after you had the X-ray? If I remember correctly, they said that I'm that I was going to be fine. It's been a little while now. Uh, mm -hmm. Remember we had those technical problems before. To the listener. I, I'm cheating a little bit, and so is doc, the doctor, because I had a conversation with him a couple of weeks ago when this was more fresh in my mind and forgot to hit record. This happens sometimes when you are a podcaster. It's only happened to me twice in the whole, uh, let's say I started doing this in 2016. So doctor, the doctor probably remembers more about the conversation than I do. So please remind me what they said. <laughs> The, the key part for me was this, though, and a couple of things that you said is that they reassured you. Okay? Yes, absolutely. And that and, was what they and, did all throughout and, the process. And the second part was, and I don't think we said this in this one, <laughs> the, the being recorded now. Version, I'm sorry. Is <laughs> uh, you walked out of the ER. Oh, at, right. Two hours. That's right. Okay. And so what, why I think this is so important on so many different levels is this would not make sense in the typical understanding of pain, the way that pain is typically presented. We wouldn't have an explanation for how it is that you can be in such severe pain that you couldn't move, that you were stuck on your bed. And yet after getting into the emergency room, two hours later, you walked out of the hospital. Yes, because I literally could not. I mean, my husband would move me an eighth of an inch and I would scream. Mm -hmm. Now, I do know that the medication did have something to do with it because they gave me a prescription for, I don't know, 10 or 14 days worth. And I still, I mean, I still have about five or six of these muscle relaxants left. And during the course of the following week, it really did help me to have those 
those pills. Yeah, I'm not much of a pill taker, so I usually will only take something if I'm really in a lot of pain. I don't like side effects and medications affect me greater than most people, especially pain type medications. But yeah, I, one of the things that I did tell them, you know, they, they said, well, we can take you out in a wheelchair. And I said, no, I, I want to walk out of here. And that's what I wound up doing. Yeah. So, so that's, um, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. And there, there so I want to kind of do like a before and after here. And in the before, we're going to talk about just before you use the traction device, because these are all little things that tend to get missed uh, or downplayed or people that um, don't think that they're that important. The first one, which I said before, was something you were, you know, something, your brain or whatever was telling you not to do it. Right. And there was a reason why it was telling you not to do it. And that reason typically has to do with concerns or uncertainty or fear. Such that, you know, if you haven't been using a traction device for a long time and then there's fear about using the traction and knowing that you have to build it up over time and then something is just saying, maybe I should not do this. And then you did it anyway. Right. Against your better judgment. You do it uh, anyway. Against the little warning brain, the little warning brain. And so you have a warning in your brain that's saying, don't do this. And the reason it's saying not to do that is because there's fear. And with that as well, not only did you do it, but then you did it for longer than you thought you should have done it. Right. Longer than I've been told I should do it by a, yeah. another professional, right? And but the 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 key the key person in all of this is you. Right. And it's the and it's the messages that your brain is telling your body and the rest of it. And so you have this kind of double whammy of fear. And then we have the traction device. And during that traction, there's some sort of stretch that's going on. Uh, you can feel the, you know, you're going to have a sensation coming up from your neck to your body. And then we had pain heart start, start to happen. And as with that pain started to happen, uh, and, you know, again, this happened a while back for you. So it's difficult to kind of piece together and, 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 and know exactly what is what you were thinking at the time. But my suspicion is part of you is when you're experiencing this pain was probably going, oh, my God, all my fears are going to come true. I'm going to be paralyzed. Exactly. You've got it perfectly correct. And as those fears go up, it, you know, then pain goes up. And with that pain going up, then obviously then you get to the point where it gets so severe that you, you're you're screaming, your husband can't move you. And it ultimately ends up where you are now getting more and more scared. Your heart rate goes up. You're releasing high amounts of adrenaline and cortisol throughout your bloodstream. Uh, then we have more and more fight or flight, kind of uh, what we call the sympathetic stimulation. You told me before that you were started going into shock-like symptoms. Where you probably and didn't. I went into shock, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so all of this, all of this starts comp compounding for, and especially for pain because there was so much fear that's involved. So, and, are you basically saying that my pain was basically psychosomatic? That I, I didn't feel it. That no, I just no, worked no, myself no. into. I'm saying this is this is the biggest misunderstanding when you come to this stuff is people assume that somehow that there's these different pains. There's a physical pain and there's an emotional pain or there's psychosomatic pain or there's I don't know, whatever other kind of pains that we're trying to think of. Mm -hmm. The the thing that I try to get across to people is that there is just pain. All pain is pain. But all pain has multiple different inputs that go into constructing it. Hmm. And what I mean by that is yes, there is physical sensations. You know, pain doesn't come from the body. If I break your bone or twist a muscle or anything else like that, it's not pain that comes out of that broken bone or, or, or twisted muscle. All it is is nerve information that's going up to the brain. 
Now that nerve information though, then takes two other components in order for us to construct this experience of pain. So we have to have both attention, you have to actually notice and direct your attention to it. And the second part about it is what we would call the affective dimension. This is the emotional component, the meaning and uh, that we give to it. And that's what and I was doing. And, th and that's what you were doing. And, and people, again, people have a tendency to, well, this just means you're saying all pain is psychosomatic. I'm saying all pain, whether you have a broken leg that just happened in this moment in time, or you've had back pain for 50 plus years with no structural damage at all, we know that that pain is all constructed in the brain and all pain has these three different components that come together to construct it. So and if then, I, so I have a question, let me yeah, interrupt yeah. you. So let's say that I had the same situation happen and, but instead of me fretting about the fact that maybe I did something that's permanent, let's say I knew how to how meditate. Would I then possibly not have felt the level of pain that I felt because I could calm my mind down? Because you said there's three components. Mm -hmm. If I could handle one of those components, will that, then maybe I wouldn't have felt so much so much pain. Well, that's the exciting thing is because once you kind of understand how these things put together, it gives you a control and ability to manage scenarios, whether it is, again, what we would typically call something chronic that's been there for a long period or in an acute scenario like what you experienced right there. I would say you don't even have to be as, as technical as, as meditating. Like all of a sudden, oh, I have neck pain. I need to start citing a mantra or something like right. that. Right? You don't need to do that. The first thing that is awareness. And what I mean by awareness is you start hanging with this neck pain. Instead of, instead of immediately jumping to what is damaged, you start thinking, what is dangerous in this moment? Or what threats could there possibly be? What am I scared of is a great question to ask. And that interruption allows you to do this. You say, oh my God, I'm having all this What am I scared of? Right. And you say, I'm scared I'm going to be paralyzed. Well, then what can you do next to actually verify that you're not paralyzed? Squeeze your hands. and Squeeze your hands. And wiggle your toes. Feet. Right. And, and so that awareness allows you to interrupt the sort of the, what we call this kind of catastrophizing cascade where we're thinking, oh, my God, I'm damaged and oh, my God, I'm paralyzed and oh, my God, there's nothing I can do. And oh, and then you start making it worse because you're thinking, well, maybe I'm living in a, in a two story right. house and I'm paralyzed. I'm not going to be able to walk. And how am I going to afford all this stuff? Right. Exactly. So you interrupt that. Now you can start doing a self reassurance. OK, if I'm scared, I'm paralyzed. Now we're, we're not talking pain right now. All we're talking about is how can we assess this threat? Fear. I can move my legs. This is a good thing. Mm -hmm. I can move my hands. It's probably not, I'm probably not paralyzed. Now you still can have pain. I would be willing to bet a large amount of money that if you could have done that in that moment and interrupted that, that your pain would have subsided dramatically. You may still have had some pain, but it wouldn't be as intense or as terrifying as it was previously. The more we diminish fear, the more pain diminishes as well. Now, the only way that makes sense though is if you understand that pain isn't about punishment or damage, but pain actually is all about protection. Hmm. So we tend to view pain as a punisher that, oh, if I'm experiencing pain, it means something is broken or damaged in my body. But what pain actually does is trying to protect you from body damage. It's an alarm system. This is the reason where if you have a, a new pain, so a new episode, sometimes those will hurt actually much, much worse than if you have a similar pain in the future, particularly if you've recovered from that in the past. So if like, if you've ever, uh, uh, you know, you're little and you, you slam your toe in the, in, the, in the door and it hurts really bad and you cry and you're, oh my God, this was so horrible. But then your mom or your parent or whoever comes over and soothes you, 
-hmm. And then you're, they're like, you know what? Look at this. Your toe's okay. Your toe's okay. And you've recovered from it. It is highly likely in a future scenario, if you do the same thing or something similar to your toe, it won't hurt as bad because you've recovered from it. So right. your brain, like, you know what? This is not as big of a deal. I know what to expect. I got better the last time. So this time should be the same. Now that interplay though with threat and danger though changes when what we are knowing and understanding of pain um, changes as well. So if in, if we are fearful that every time we experience pain that there's body damage and we know that there must be body damage because that's the only real pain there is, is body damage pain. Everything else is psychosomatic and it's all in your head. So this has to be real because otherwise, how can I explain a pain that I'm having? Uh, I don't think, I don't believe this is, this is just in my head. This is real pain. If we believe that it always associated with body damage, then we tend to start fearing what kind of body damage that we have. We start going down this thing that this must be horrible. This must be severe. This is going to be so much worse. My, my fears are coming true. I'm going to be paralyzed, like you said. And um, if we start learning that to be scared of pain, when we start experiencing future pains, we're actually more likely to have more severe pains because now we're fearful of pain. Of what could happen is, is what causes a hypochondriac. So I, a better word, instead of saying hypochondriac, because uh -huh. there's some negative connotations with that. Okay. What I would prefer is hypervigilant. Yeah, that makes sense too. That's okay. a good word, you know, about their health. It may be in your, and that is not a bad thing per se, right? We, we want to be vigilant and we want to, we want to take care of ourselves. But when you get to, or hypervigilant, when you start seeing threats and dangers everywhere, that is not necessarily, that's not good for pain. It's actually not good for your body. It's not good for your health in a lot of ways and shapes or form. Cause then you're and in so high alert all the time. You're high alert. Your sympathetic system is an overdrive. Um, and people tend to, this is not just about pain anymore. It actually affects things like your cardiovascular health and your gastrointestinal health and all sorts of your sleep and all these other, other um, organ systems. And so this is one of the reasons that you see people who tend to have lots and lots of pain also tend to have lots and lots of other medical problems as well. Irritable bowel syndrome, insomnia. Uh, some people have heart disease, prior heart attacks, palpitations. Uh, and all of this is coming together as basically a hyper-protective, hyper-vigilant sympathetic system that is seeing threat and danger in places where someone without such a vigilant or overactive protective system would not see threat. So what can you do if you feel yourself going down that path? Because none of us wants to feel pain. I mean, I certainly wasn't saying to myself that night, huh, let's see, you know, let, let's see how I can work myself up into a frenzy so that I have to go to the ER. And let me tell you, when we got the bill, that was another pain. <laughs> you know? So yes, yes. what can we do if we find ourselves going down that path? I mean, I know you said to break the cycle by comforting ourselves, you know, it's probably... I don't know if you want to say it's probably nothing that's probably not going to work, but um, just testing your body and, and saying thank you for the things that are working or what do you suggest? Well, so, so there's, um, I'm going to take a, a step in front of that question as well, right? Because we were, we were saying, well, we, none of us want to experience pain. Well, that's true, except that pain serves a vital role to us. So you can say, oh, I never want to experience pain, except. Like, so if you burned your finger or you had your hand touching a hot stove, yeah, I'd want to know. I'm sure you want to experience some pain in that moment in time, right? 
Right. And so the, the first thing for me and the thing that I think is so important, with, it, it gets kind of hard for to, to explain, though, is the more that we actually understand some basics about pain and the science of pain, the more we appreciate what pain is trying to do. And it is never about complete elimination of pain. There are people that have genetic conditions that are involved where people have very minimal to essentially no experiences of pain in their life. And those people tend to die young. They lose limbs because they'll break an ankle. And oh, they don't I've know heard of that. I've heard of that condition. I don't, did you say the name of it? The, no, the... I didn't. And then, and because the, because I don't, I don't particularly like the name of the, the, oh, the okay. name of it is insensitivity to pain, but actually what it has to do is it has a, a, a genetic uh, disruption in um, a specific type of nerve fiber. Hmm. And so while they think that pe though they say that those people cannot experience pain, that's actually not true. Uh, but it is extraordinarily difficult for them to experience pain. Right. Um, and that would cause a lot of problems for sure. Well, it does. And the other part is that pain is associated with learning. So if we understand pain as a protector, there's a time it can protect us in this moment. We touch the hot stove. We have a sharp sensation go up to our brain. We see a glowy thing. We withdraw. And then we go, well, I must have burned my finger. And there's, there's pain in that moment. So pain is protecting us because it's withdrawing and we're now protecting that finger that now has been burned. Mm -hmm. But the other way that pain protects us is for the future. Because if you ever saw a hot burning stove in the future, how likely are you to touch it again? Probably not very likely. And the reason is you had a lot of pain the first time you did That's it. right. Now, why, so, why can't some people associate that pain with bad relationships? I know we don't want to go there, but <laughs> well, well, and I'll, and here because here's because people tend to think of pain in unidimensional terms. It's all about the body or sensations coming up from the body itself to the brain. Again, that pain equals physical damage. It's not someone's telling them I'm crazy. Uh, I'm crazy, and and that can't be true. Mm -hmm. But remember, pain is about protection, and pain also has is multidimensional. So that we have that sensory aspect, the nerves coming up from the body to the brain. The other two key components to it are what I call cognition and emotion. Cognition is the thought and attention. So that you're actually, you know, you're focusing your attention on that sensation and what else you're seeing in your environment where you see lots of threat and danger or believe there's threat and danger. And then the, the second part is the emotion, which you can kind of think about that has to do with the meaning that you're giving that sensation. Oh, this is horrible. This is awful. I'm going to be paralyzed. Um, the mood that you're currently in, oh, I'm upset and depressed. That actually is a threat to your body as well. And a lot of memory that you have when you have previous episodes of pain. And so when we put those three together, we construct pain. Now, where the relation part, relationships and stress and trauma come in is the more that you have high threat in your environment, whether it's physical threat, emotional threat, financial threat, social threat, spiritual threat, that sensitizes your brain to see more danger around you. And so you're more likely to experience pain. This is one of the reasons that we see people who've had a lot of trauma, particularly early life trauma that are coming from families of abuse or families of, a ne of neglect or families where there's a, a, a history of lots of people around them experiencing pain. They tend to have more pain and more severe pain than people who are coming from different environments. And it is not because these people are crazy or that those people are fundamentally damaged uh, or their brains are, 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 are disrupted. But if you come from a background of trauma and abuse, 
it makes more sense for your brain to start seeing and perceiving threat early and react more vigorously than not because it's trying to protect you from bad things that's happening. One way I kind of explain that is if, you know, if you're in a, in a really abusive house and you don't know if the, if the person who's opening that door to your bedroom at midnight is your mom coming in to give you a kiss goodnight because she just got off, maybe she got off early from the midnight shift, or it's your abuser coming into your room because they know that your mom is off on their midnight shift. It makes more sense from a survival-based standpoint from your brain to say, key up and say, threat, 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 this is bad, something bad's gonna happen to prepare you than just to pretend that nothing is going bad is going to happen to you. So does that sort of make sense? Absolutely, it does. So when you hear that doorknob twist, you're going to go into alert. You're going to go. You're going. You're because you're and you're going to start. The brain starts to become hyper vigilant and training in a way to start seeing threat easier. Now, because that brain has then learned and come from that environment, it has a tendency to act like a hyper uh, protective parent or an overprotective parent as you get older. So now you may not live in that same abusive environment. You may have changed the relationship that you have, but the brain, unless we, we have actually worked on that, doesn't necessarily know it. It remains hypervigilant. It remains starting to see threat, see danger, to initiate that stress response uh, more aggressively and easier than someone who didn't come from that same environment. The one thing I, I want people to understand, though, this does not mean people were broken or damaged, that you've come from an environment like this, that you're broken or damaged. What it does mean is that the brain is doing the best it could possibly do to keep you and your body safe. And as you get older, it's still trying to do the best it can do. It's just doing it in a way that's not, not what we would say ideal anymore. Uh, but that doesn't mean it can't change. The, again, the, the more aware we are of these relationships, the more that we can see pain and see, you know what, this is about threat and danger. So am I, are there physical threats? Can I move my arms and legs? Am I paralyzed? Oh, no, I'm not. Well, what else is occurring right now that's a threat to me? What else is here that may be contributing to my experience of pain? And this becomes especially important for pain that persists or pain that has been lasting for months and months and months, if not years and years and years. So do you believe in biofeedback to help with that? I, I believe in biofeedback. I, with the, the, the key things for me, the ones that I'm a huge advocate for or anything that you can do for yourself. And what I mean by that, is there's two major divisions of treatments that you can look at. There were what we call passive-based therapies and there are active-based therapies. Passive-based therapies are things like surgeries, injections, and drugs. They're ones where you as the individual don't have um, really control over that technique. You're reliant on somebody else to do something to or for you. And then there are active-based modalities. And what active-based modalities are things that you do for yourself or things that you have learned and work with somebody else to uh, gain a skill set. Biofeedback is one of those active-based therapies because what you're doing with biofeedback, you have to participate. You have to be engaged and you're actually training then your brain to be able to relax in certain scenarios. And biofeedback is great for that. And you know, you, you know, there's many different types. There's ones where you can actually look at a little pulse wave. There's ones where you're actually trying to align your breathing and decrease your heart rate and stimulation so that you can get these lines to alive. But what you're basically doing is you're developing your own skill set. And the reason I like those is people can't take that away from you. And then right. the skill sets that you have, you can use them again, whether you've had back pain for 40 years or if you have tripped and fallen and broken your leg. You can use those same skill sets in that moment in time to help improve your pain. Now, are you going to make it magically go away all the time? No, 
But if that's a tool that can help you improve your pain by 10%, 20%, 40%, 60%, 80% in some scenarios, it makes sense to do it, particularly when you're looking at a lot of the opioid medications or other types of opioids, particularly for chron or other types of medications for chronic pain, their therapeutic effects is at most anywhere from 10 to 20%. And we can do that with uh, biofeedback expectations, attentional, uh, uh, attentional change, uh, deep breathing exercises, movement training, and things like that. So um, you can get, in, and it's cheap. Like once you've trained it and you've learned that skill set, you're not relying on anybody else. You're not reliant to go out to a provider anymore. You're not reliant to have to go into some office and have someone stick needles in you all the time. Um, and so that I think is is where the excitement comes. But the challenging thing is people have some people have a tendency to view that. If it's if it's something I can do for myself, uh, then that must not be as good as something that else that say the doctor, the injections or the drugs or anything else must that must be better because it's coming from the doctor. Hmm. Isn't that funny how we view these things? Um, what about somebody who wants to learn more about these other things? Like, like, can you buy a biofeedback machine? Like, I wouldn't even know where to start to like is there an app for that like how how do you find out about these other therapies is this on your website or your podcast how how do we direct the listener to find out about these other therapies so i tend i i tend to start with actually focusing on the science of pain first and then looking at the therapies and tools later mm -hmm. um, and the and the reason for that is something that what we've just sort of basically talked about in the last i don't know however long we've been talking 20 30 minutes or whatever it it superficially can make sense but it takes some processing to kind of like dissect into what this actually means so i always go back let, take, spend a little bit more time if you spend 10 15 20 minutes two hours to learn some pain science actually how pain kind of works mm -hmm. then the tools and techniques become a little bit more self-evident and then, um, and then to actually find those tools and techniques where there's bio, you know, that depends on the individual. If someone's interested in biofeedback, then we can look at bio, you know, biofeedback oriented therapies. If someone's interested in more relaxation or stress management, then I would direct them to more of a stress management approach. If people are looking at things like uh, meditation or mindfulness type of therapies, uh, which have lots of different health benefits, then you can go more of the mindfulness route. But it's really making sure that whatever it is that you choose to pursue makes sense for your scenario and is something that you're interested in and want to do rather than um, me just saying, oh, it's biofeedback is the best thing. It has to be. You, you should go out and do biofeedback. So everybody's different. Everybody's different. Everybody, every pain is unique. Every person is unique. And then so the really the ideal scenario for works for somebody is going to be determined by them. And I can, you know, other people may say, I never want to do meditation. I don't like to do that stuff. Well, that's fine. What do you like to do? Well, I like to 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 golf, but they said I can't golf because of my back pain. Well, let's why don't we start working on movement? And there's ways that you can incorporate mindful movement, things like, you know, typically people will say tai chi, but it doesn't even have to be tai chi. It just can be walking. It can be strengthening exercises and we're not really focusing as much on making sure that your back muscles are strong as making sure that your brain feels safe in your body again. So it's interesting when you look at exercise programs for things like back pain, exercise is actually the number one evidence-based modality to prevent future episodes of back pain. But the reason why it helps prevent future episodes of back pain isn't just because you're strengthening your back, is that your brain is feeling safe and comfortable again. And the other, the other part about that is as you exercise and feel stronger, you tend to feel more safe in your body again. 
And so we see people who've done exercise programs, the, the improvement in pain isn't just the muscle growth, the hypertrophy and the size of the muscles, but how they're feeling, what they're believed to be true, how safe they are and how, how, how strong they believe their backs to be. Um, so that was a long way to say, you pick what works for you. If you're a person who's interested in meditation, I would go the mindfulness route. If you're someone who has got a, a, a pretty strong trauma background and it is pretty um, overwhelming to you, in that scenario, I would talk to a psychologist, a behavioral health specialist to start learning techniques that we can start processing trauma and understand how that trauma impacts your current life, not just your pain, but your health in general, and learn some techniques there that can adjust that. So we are looking at every pain is unique. Every person's unique. Every therapeutic uh, kind of path for those individuals is unique as well. Great. Well, if my listener wants to learn more about what you do, where can they find you? So probably one of the easiest ways in the first step is um, I have a, a free program. It's called Why We Hurt. And if you just go to whywehurt.com, um, there's a little introductory video training course, I guess you would call it, that kind of goes into a little bit more detail of what we're talking about with pain and how you can understand pain and how it's constructed and provides you some first steps there. Perfect. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking about the first, you know, about pain and about my pain in particular. I really appreciate it. Next week, we're going to talk about how well the healthcare system treats pain. Thanks again for, for coming on the show today. This was very, very insightful. Great. Thank you, Kathy, for having me. You're welcome. And for the listener, we'll see you next time on Rock Your Retirement. Bye.